Now, it came about after this, 2 Samuel 15, 1. So whenever you see something like that, you say, after what? The last verse of chapter 14 says, so when Joab, and remember Joab had manipulated a, a way to get a woman to come before David and tell a story and ultimately get Absalom back into the royal court. When Joab came to the king, and this is after uh, Absalom had started a fire in Joab's field to get things moving, you remember that? Hey, you're not returning my phone calls, I'll just set your field on fire and then we'll get things moving in a positive direction here. Well, they responded to the ultimatum of Absalom, called for him, 1433. Thus he came to the king, prostrated himself, that looks good, on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. That's how last week ended. These were, you could say in many ways, formalities of the royal court. Sometimes you'll see in Europe and in other places how people will do a formal kiss on the cheek. They'll kiss both sides of the face. And it's not necessarily something that's done out of deep emotion or a depth of relationship. It, it, it's more a formality. David's kiss was a kiss from a father to a son, but it does seem like what Absalom did was a formality, bowing before the king, almost like you would do if you came before anybody where that was expected. And then David's kiss was a way of saying, you're back in the good graces of the royal court. You're, you're an heir again, even though we know that Absalom will not be the heir to the throne. He will die. But Absalom was never intended to be the heir to the throne. The heir to the throne is going to be a man named Solomon. That was God's plan. And David is going to know as these uh, chapters unfold, and I think we all are aware of what is behind this, that God's disciplinary hand is happening in David's life. He is meeting out discipline to David for what David did. And, and David was told by Nathan the prophet, the sword's never gonna leave your house. What you did in secret's gonna be done openly. And you've given cause for the enemies of God to blaspheme. You might be asking some deeper theological questions like, well, if that's the case, if God's meeting out discipline to David, does that mean that Absalom is just a pawn in this story, that God is the one moving the puzzle pieces? And the answer to that is no. God is eternal. He doesn't have to look down a corridor of time, nor does he really have to move puzzle pieces. He already knows everything because for God, everything is now. It's his nature. He's eternal. He is the beginning. He's the middle and he's the end. Never in heaven does he say, whoa, I didn't see that one coming. And aren't you glad? Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't work out his will. And some of these things are a bit of a mystery when you begin to kind of dig down. But we are told in 2 Samuel 15, 1, it came about after this, that Absalom provided for himself a chariot. So he's now back in the royal court. A chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. Now, all of a sudden, Absalom provides for himself a chariot. He, all of a sudden, wants to look kingly. And as the chapter unfolds, we're going to see that he begins to plot a plan to usurp the throne from his father. He wants to be the king, probably partly because he doesn't believe that his father is just. After all, he let Amnon get away with what he got away with. 
Why does he deserve to be king? And somewhere deep down, Absalom was nursing bitterness. Turn over, hold your place in uh, 2 Samuel. Turn over to the book of Hebrews. This is chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12. The writer of Hebrews is giving examples uh, in chapter 11 about faith. And then he gives a negative example from the life of Esau. Hebrews 12, look at verse 14. Hebrews 12, he's just been talking about discipline and how if God disciplines you and you learn from it, then it will yield fruit in your life. If you submit to that discipline, if you will, it's not pleasant, nobody likes it, but it will allow you, Hebrews 12, 10, to share in God's holiness if you allow that discipline to work. All discipline, Hebrews 12, 11, for the moment seems to be not to be joyful, but sorrowful. If you've ever heard your parents say to you, this is gonna hurt me more than it's gonna hurt you, I'm not sure about that one, but anyway. But I used it on my kids, so uh, anyway, feel free. But <laughs> so, but it yields something. It yields, if you're trained by discipline, notice middle of 11 of Hebrews 12. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of what? Of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak, the knees that are feeble. Discipline is intended to strengthen weaker parts of your life. Make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Discipline's purpose is for healing and strength. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. And see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Now I mentioned at the beginning, if you go back to 2 Samuel, that Absalom was nursing a root of bitterness, and by it many were going to be hurt. What should he have done? Let's ask that question. Well, I think if he would have come to his father and said, Dad, I am angry. I don't know why you didn't deal with Amnon. I am sorry for what I've done. I regret it. Would you please forgive me? We probably would have been on the road to healing. But instead of that, Am, uh, Absalom nursed the bitterness. He didn't show it on the outside, but on the inside, the water was boiling over. And so he begins to position himself. He gets a chariot, horses and a chariot, chariots, and he begins to show that he is kingly. He, he's bowed before his father, but I think it's clear that his heart is far away from his father. Jesus said, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you saying, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Absalom's heart was far from his father. Absalom's ambition was singular. He would oppose the kingdom of David, but by opposing David's kingdom, he would oppose God. And if you oppose God, you're going to lose. David's ascension to the throne was not solely dependent upon his person. Yes, he was a man after God's own heart, but he was still a sinner like you and me. The Davidic covenant promises that God made were not based upon perfect performance. It was something that God decided to do. He chose David. And so Absalom, by opposing his father, will oppose God. 
David's failure had weakened his kingdom. God's heavy hand was on him, but still God's promises were there. And God's promises never fail. He will never leave you, nor will he ever forsake you. Even if you feel like you've made some poor decisions that have hurt you and others around you, and even in your witness. And so Absalom began to put some stuff in place. The sons rode upon mules, uh, 2 Samuel 13, 19, but Absalom set up chariots and horses. Some commentators say this is the first time chariots and horses are seen on the streets of Jerusalem in the Bible. And they say that chariots and horses are associated more with the enemies of God. Think of the chariots of Egypt than they are with God's people. And chariots and horses and the multiplication thereof were a warning given to the kings of Israel not to multiply horses and to multiply wives. But it seemed like they ignored those warnings. And so Absalom is trying to look the part. He's trying to get a big image going on. And so he got a tricked out SUV, (laughs) tinted windows, lowered, (laughs) cool rims, Guys with sunglasses, young and studly, running in front of the. Hey, you got to have something. You got his back. Yeah, good, 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 good. Everywhere he went, he looked like the official kingly crown prince. Whoa, there he goes again. There he goes again. He had one of the most well known cars of the time. It was called a JMW. Jerusalem. Motor works. I don't know. <laughs> How you like that? Anyway. And he was going around town looking like he had secret service and everywhere he went there was parade and pomp. You think David heard about it? You think any of the People in the city went, hey, David, uh, have you seen Absalom's new car? Have you seen some of the guys that run with him? Have you heard about their walkie-talkie system? I mean, David had to be hearing. But you're going to notice an underlying theme in the chapter. David, we never hear from him. He's passive. Passive parenting doesn't work. Can I get a witness? (laughs) Sometimes you see the brat in the store and you say, please, I'll cover the camera. You spank him. (laughs) That's all I'll say about that right now. (laughs) Absalom used to rise early, verse 2, and stand beside the way to the gate. The gate was the city hall of the ancient world where what's called adjudication would happen. They would, they would hear cases and come to conclusions of judgment and trials and that kind of thing. So Absalom woke up early. He believed in the early saying, the early bird gets the crown. And he would stand by the way of the gate. And it happened when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment because the king would hear cases. Absalom would call to him. He had his chariots and horses and 50 men. He looked official. And he would say, From what city are you? And he would say, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Hey, he kind of intercepted people who are supposed to be coming to King David to hear his wisdom. 
And he stood a little bit before the gate and he would say, hey, where are you from, where are you from brother, sister? Oh, I'm from the tribe of Dan. Oh, you are. I have a cousin out in those parts. Uh, yeah, yeah. You ever experienced this and that from over there and there? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah, I know that place. And he would all of a sudden begin to position himself so he could be the judge. After all, he didn't think his father's judgment was that great anyway. Where are you from? Hey, let's, let's talk a little bit. The city gate being the official city hall, you can check Genesis 19.1, where Lot is at the city gate. You can check out Deuteronomy 21.19, Ruth 4.1, but just think of the city gate as kind of city hall. And so here's Absalom intercepting. He has initiative. He wakes up early. He intercepts. He ingratiates himself with the people. Absalom would say to him, the person that he struck up the conversation, see, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. If you have the ESV, it says, there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Here's the problem, brother. I hear what you're saying. I think your claims are good and right. I agree with you. If only King David would get his administration together, people like you could be heard. People like you would get recourse for their cases uh, you know, against others. But this administration is slack. They don't care about the people anymore. Do you see a budding politician? Oh, yeah. Sure, he had posters with his face on it. Make Israel great again. <laughs> Stuff like that. And what he was really implying is the king doesn't listen to you. They don't listen to you anymore. They don't care about the people. Your chances of receiving justice from this administration are slim to none, brother. But I hear you. I'm the crown prince after all. And I hear what you're saying. And he began to create a dilemma. He was making political promises and he was also speaking against his father's administration. And Absalom would then say something like this, verse 4, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land, then every man who has any suit or cause could come to me, and I, can you hear it, brothers and sisters, I would give the people justice. Political promises, right? We've heard it from every politician from the time there was any kind of democratic process. I will be a friend of the people. I will do this. Read my lips. <laughs> this is back a couple of generations ago. Read my lips. No new taxes. Yeah, right. But this is how the game works. And Absalom began to play the game. And he began to put doubt in people's hearts about David and make them Look at him, and after all, Absalom was a good-looking dude. He had an impressive entourage. There was no one as handsome as him, and remember, most people's hairdos had some of Absalom's hair. <laughs> you were with us last week. He had some big hair, man. He, he had opened several stores. He had a chain going on. 
J. Vernon McGee called Absalom a great backslapper. I'll take care of you, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Backslapper. And so he began to tell people, look, if I was in charge around here, people would be getting justice. I'll set things right. And it happened that when a man came near prostrate to prostrate himself before him, by the way, which shouldn't have happened because he wasn't the king, but a man would come and prostrate himself. Notice how quick on the trigger Absalom was. Earlier we saw he would tell the person they're right before he even apparently heard the case. And then when a person came before Absalom, he would put out his hand, he would take hold of him, and he would kiss him. Where are you from, man? Oh, yeah, it's going to be okay. And he, he was, his father just kissed him at the end of the last chapter. He was giving kingly kisses, but his kisses were full of malice, almost like the hypocritical kiss of Judas when he kissed Jesus in the garden to identify him as the one. And in this manner, Absalom, verse 6, dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. And so verse 6 says, Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Little by little, one at a time, he would hear a case. He would say, I will, I will give justice in your favor. He would kiss them. He would say he had a connection to them. He understood them. They would walk away saying, man, he's handsome. He's impressive. He listens to the people. And he gives judgments in our favor. What else could you want? And so he stole their hearts away. There are some scholars that believe that David may have been sick, physically ill at this time. There are some psalms that are attributed to this time that speak of some sort of sickness. Thus it may be, and this is conjecture, but this is one view, that Absalom kicked David when he was down and stepped into an open gap to seize advantage when his father was physically ill and maybe couldn't carry out all the duties of the office. I mean, that's one explanation, and it seems to make some sense. Here's one of the Psalms you can look at. Psalm 41. Just go to your right. Psalm 41. Many of the Psalms are written by David, and of course, a lot of them are written during times of trouble. That's what makes them so relatable. And you might be asking, well, what was David's weapon if he was on a sickbed and Absalom's pulling all these shenanigans? What did David do and what should I do if something similar is happening to me? One writer this week I read said, David's main weapon in these times was prayer. In Psalm 41, he said, how blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive. And he shall be called blessed upon the earth. Do not give him over to the desires of his enemies. The Lord, 41.3, will sustain him on his sickbed in his illness. Thou dost restore him to health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against thee. I'm sure David's sin still bothered him, of course. My enemies speak evil against me. They say things like this, when will he die and his name perish? Maybe you could read between the lines, when will he die so I can just take over and when he comes to see me, he speaks falsehood. You can imagine Absalom visiting David. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. When he goes outside, he tells it. He doesn't tell me, but he tells it when he leaves. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. They say, 
a wicked thing is poured out upon him that when he lies down, he will not rise up again. He's sick because of what he did. Verse nine, even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. By the way, this is quoted in the New Testament in regard to Judas betraying Jesus. But thou, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that thou art pleased with me because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. As for me, thou dost uphold me in my integrity. Thou dost set me in thy presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Back to 2 Samuel. Now there's a little bit of a debate as to the number in verse seven. There are some manuscripts that say at the end of 40 years, that's how the New American Standard reads in verse seven. There are some, a few manuscripts that say 40 days. And if you have an ESV or NIV, it says four years, which is technically called an emendation. It's amended and it's amended based upon a few manuscripts, namely the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament, and then from Josephus. Uh, those who translate believe four makes more sense, and just so you know, it's the difference between four and 40 is a one plural ending. And so sometimes in the translations or the copies, if there was some sort of copyist error, and by the way, this doesn't mean that the Bible's not the word of God, but it was copied by humans. So sometimes by looking at various manuscripts, we can get, ba get back to the original and we can tell there was a slip of the pen somewhere. And by the way, it's just a slip of the pen potentially on a number. So if you wanna do a little bit more homework, I can recommend some resources. But basically, uh, it would seem that the more logical conclusion is at the end of four years. And this is what this would mean that Absalom was doing what he was doing as described in the first six verses for about four years. That's about how long it took. 40 years seems to be a really long time. David would be really old, so you can see part of the dilemma there. So here's what happened. At the end of four years, if that's correct, Absalom said to the king, verse seven, please let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. So all of a sudden, Absalom comes to the king. He's been doing this stuff for potentially four years, and he says, I made a vow, and I want to go pay that vow in Hebron. Now, maybe, maybe his dad was thinking, well, maybe the young man's getting some conviction about a spiritual life. This could be a good thing. He made a vow to the Lord. Certainly, you're supposed to pay your vows, and it's been a while, so, so this is what he comes. He comes with religious pretense. He says, your servant, and I don't think he's David's servant, but that's what he says, verse 8. He says, vowed a vow while I was living at Geshur. Remember, he had ran off to his grandpa after he killed Amnon in Aram, saying, if the Lord shall indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, if I end up back in the royal court, if you will, then I will serve the Lord. So we've all probably been there before. Maybe we're in a tight spot and we, we're, we didn't know what was gonna happen. And maybe, maybe you've done this before. I don't recommend this, but some people have done it. They make a vow to the Lord in a tight spot. We've all probably been there. Okay, Lord, if you get me out of this one, I will serve you. And God is so gracious, he'll often get you out of that one. 
But then he'll say, now serve me. And that's when a lot of people say, now that you got me out of this one, see you later, God. I'll, I'll call you next time I have an emergency. Now, we don't know if this is true or not, but this is what Absalom said. I made a vow. I need to go to Hebron and pay for it. Hebron was a famous uh, place in the life of the early patriarchs. It was also where David was anointed king at first. It's where Absalom was born. And so the king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and he went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. All right, guys, here's the plan. I told dad I got to pay a vow and that's why I'm going to Hebron. And as soon as I arrive and you hear the trumpet blow, begin to announce me as king. Look, this is what he's been working towards for four years. This is the little game he was playing. This is what he had going on. Do you think David knew? Oh, I think deep down, David had to have heard information. He probably knew something was going on. As soon as the trumpet sounds, the coup is on. Then 200 men went with Absalom from Jerusalem who were invited and went innocently. He may have told them, I'm gonna go pay my vow. There's gonna be some sort of religious celebration. They didn't know anything. And he pulled 200 men away. What type of men do you think he pulled out of the city and brought to Hebron? Probably administrative leaders, probably military leaders, probably the core of the essential leadership that surrounded David. And he pulled him out of the city in a brilliant move to weaken the support that David would have once it was known that Absalom was trying to steal or usurp the throne. It was brilliant. We'll pull his main leadership out. We'll pull his main cabinet out and basically hold those people hostage so we can take over. Now think about it. A son is doing this to his dad. Talk about devastating. And so he, they didn't know anything, but this was part of the puzzle that Absalom was constructing. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, who was one of David's main counselors from the city of Gilo, while he was offering sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. It was like a snowball rolling down the hill. Momentum was gained. He chipped away little by little, and the kingdom conspiracy was on. And now he had captured the hearts of so many that it looked like this huge dilemma. And a messenger came to David and said, 13, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. There's a coup going on. He's taken 200 of your top men away. He's been chipping away at the hearts of the people. And we warned you. We told you. Reading between the lines. And David said to his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee. For otherwise, none of us shall escape from Absalom. He's killed his brother, and I think he'll do it again. David's basically saying, go in haste, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And David was told by Nathan, the sword will never leave your house. And David is starting to think, you know what? Not only is my son trying to take over my throne, but it's risking the lives of everybody I love. How many times did David have to look in the mirror and say, oh God, forgive me for my sin. Oh God, forgive me for what I've created. Let us go. 
In John 14, after Jesus said some things to the apostles, some key things about heaven and who he was, he said, I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do arise, let us go from here. I'm gonna be betrayed. Who is it, Lord? Who is it? The one who dips in the bowl at the same time. And they said, is it me, Lord? They didn't know. Judas was a great actor like Absalom. They didn't even know it was him. A lot of people, when they picture Judas Iscariot, they think he had red bloodshot eyes and you could see little horns coming out of his hairdo. Judas knew it all along. No, they didn't know it. He appeared righteous. What was really going on in Judas was going on in here. He was so good that not even the 12 apostles or 11 knew it was him. So get out of your mind that Judas had a little, you know, tail coming out of the back of his robe. Uh Uh-uh. He was the ultimate hupakritas, the ultimate actor. And there's a lot of them out there. And Absalom was one of them. Man, he'd come to his father, bowed before him. He told dad, I'm going to go deal with a religious vow. But all along, he had the intention of destroying his father's kingdom. Now, if you turn to Psalm 3, to your right again, here's another psalm during this time. And uh, in some of the cases of the psalms, you'll see a heading at the top of the psalm. And it will give you the historical context of when it was written. So take a look, Psalm 3. See the heading, a Psalm of David, when what? When he fled from Absalom, his son. So here we are. We can see kind of the heart of David. What was he praying? What was he thinking? What was he saying to God? Here's what he said. Oh, Lord, Psalm 3. How my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Remember, there was many people with Absalom Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. David's done. I don't know if you've noticed, Absalom's taken over. But thou, O Lord, art a what? A shield about me. You're my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down. Imagine how tough it would have been to sleep the next night And I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people. I don't care how many people he's got on his side. I won't be afraid who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For thou hast smitten all my enemies on the cheek. Thou hast shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Thy blessing be upon thy people. Now, as great a warrior, back to 2 Samuel 15, as David was, he believed that one of the essential weapons in dire straits was prayer. Do you? Do I? Is prayer a last-ditch effort? Or do you believe that one of the weapons of your warfare in spiritual warfare is prayer? David did. In fact, some of the more poignant psalms that really speak to our hearts were written when David seemed to have no way out. And you may be feeling like you have no way out. Let me just tell you that God's big enough to deal with 
the enemies that are multiplying. Then the king's servant said to the king, 15, 2 Samuel 15, 15, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king chooses. Now, there were faithful men that were around David. And they said, tell us what to do, and we'll do it. When Jesus was beginning to go through what's called the upper room discourse in John 13 and share with the apostles, and there was some heaviness, Peter said to the Lord, I will lay down my life for you. I don't care how many people are coming. I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus said to him, will you, Peter? I tell you the truth. Before the cock crows, you will deny that you even know me three times. Peter couldn't imagine that. But the men who were faithful to David, and he, he, he did have men that were faithful, said, tell us what to do and we'll do it. They showed fidelity and faith. We'll do whatever my Lord the King chooses. That's what a Christian says, by the way. Whatever you tell me to do, that's what I'll do, Lord. We should come to the end of a day, every day, and say, I did what I did because you are my King, and I didn't do certain things because you are my King. That's what it means to have Jesus be your Lord. And so the king went out and all his household with him, but the king left 10 concubines. This is a bit of a head scratcher, but he left them to keep the house, which is going to backfire because later Absalom is going to ravage them as a statement that he is now the king. We'll see that later. For David, maybe it was a statement of faith anticipating his return and the king went out and all the people with him and they stopped at the last house. So now picture them, they're going out of the city. The city is set up on a hill, so you kind of have to go down a hill and back up. If you're heading eastward, here's how it works. There's, the Temple Mount is here. And if you're looking east, you, you look to the Mount of Olives and you go down into the old city from what is believed to be the Temple Mount. You go down and then you go back up again to the Mount of Olives. So that's what David did. He began to depart from the city. And the last house, kind of the last house on the outskirts, they stopped. Can you imagine that moment for a second? This was called the city of David. This is your city. Think of it this way. This is your property. This is my house. And I got to leave right now because my son's coming to kill me and take over. You imagine the emotion, the pathos, and they come to the edge of town, if you will, and stopped at the last house and did something like this. David had to be thinking, am I going to see this city again? Is my son going to usurp my throne? Is this part of God's disciplinary hand in my life? They stopped at the last house, almost like a Selah pause that we see in the Psalms. When Jesus left the temple in Matthew he said, your house is left to you desolate. I wonder if David was thinking something similar. Now, all his servants passed on beside him, all the Cherethites, these are foreigners, the Pelethites who had become uh, committed to David, all the Gittites, you can think of uh, Gentiles here, 600 men who had come with him from Gath, passed on or crossed over before the king. David had commitments from Gentile soldiers and people who were foreigners, which anticipates the fact that in Christ, the Gentiles will hope. If you're not a Jew here, you're a Gentile. 
And in Christ, the Gentiles will hope. And David is a foreshadowing of the greater David. They're separated by a thousand years. King David foreshadows the greater David, the son of David, Jesus, the Messiah, and many Gentiles trusted in Christ. He went to the Samaritan woman. He dealt with the Canaanite woman who had a demon-possessed daughter. He went to the other side of the sea and delivered the man who had legion. And the man who had legion said, please, wherever you go, that's where I want to be. And Jesus said, no, you stay here and you tell your family the great things the Lord has done for you. And in the Decapolis, which is the 10 cities, the Gentile side of the lake, that man did his job. And Jesus fed the 4,000 later on that side. And so the king said to Ittai the Gittite, 19. What a cool name, Ittai the Gittite. <laughs> Print that on a business card. Why will you also go with us? Return and remain with the king. Now he calls Absalom the king. Why? Maybe a test, for you are a foreigner and also in exile. Return to your own place. Don't come with us. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander with us? Well, here's the king speaking to these committed Gentiles. While I go where I will, I don't even know where I'm going. Look, this is a repeat of the Saul stuff, where he wandered in the wilderness and hid in caves from the crazed King Saul. David had to be saying, man, I'm doing all this all over again. I'm too old for this, Lord. Huh? Maybe 60? When I was earlier in the wilderness, I was young. It was easy to jump down from rocks and hang out in caves. I'm 60. <laughs> you can only relate if you're around that number. Yep. It doesn't sound so good. A Winnebago sounds much better than a cave. I know you people like to camp and you talk about your roasted marshmallows and your campfire songs, I'll take the Winnebago. Air conditioning, electronics. <laughs> All right, we'll leave that alone. I don't even know where I'm going. That was part of the sermon, by the way. I'm going to be wandering around. Return and take back your brother's. You don't want to be with a guy like me. Mercy and truth be with you. 21. But Ittai answered in the king and said, As the Lord lives, this is the language of an oath. As the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, surely wherever my Lord the king may be, whether for death or life, if we live or if we die, I am going with you. There's no place else I'd rather be. This is almost like the book of Ruth with Ruth and Naomi. And, and she says, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you live, I will live. Where you die, I will die. Can you imagine how this must have thrilled David's heart? You have a friend who's more committed to you, a Gentile friend, than your own son. And Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be the children of God. 
And Jesus would say to people, you're my family if you do what God says. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? The ones who hear the word of God and do it. And they said, and I think he was speaking on behalf of all the men. We're not going anywhere. If we die with you today, then we die. What a great commitment. What a great statement of faith. Oh, that we would have similar bravery when God calls us. Therefore, David said to Ittai, go and pass over. So Ittai the Gittite passed over with all his men, all the little ones who were with him. While all the country was weeping with a loud voice, all the people passed over. The repetition of crossed over, passed over is almost the reverse of coming into the promised land. It's like, are the promises of God over? Is Jerusalem done? Is the city of David done? Is this reign over? And they wept, 23, lots of weeping, their homes, everything being left behind, the glory of the kingdom, all the people passed over. The king also passed over the brook Kidron and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. Scholars uh, talk about the wilderness tradition and Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Then they crossed over into the promised land and now the reverse is happening. They're crossing the Kidron, which by the way, in the Old Testament, oftentimes people who were exiled from Jerusalem, the final piece of the exile was to cross over the Kidron which in the winter would flow, but if you go to Israel today, it's actually, at least when I was there, dried up. It's kind of the, the point where you leave the city and begin to climb up the Mount of Olives. Now, we're gonna, we're gonna stop here in 2 Samuel, but I'm gonna take you now to a scene in the New Testament, and this will be our conclusion for this morning. It's in John 18. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John 18. And I just want to paint a quick picture and tell you about the link between David and Jesus. Jesus went through what's called the upper room discourse. John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are probably the last 24 hours of Jesus's life. So those treasured chapters about Jesus washing their feet, telling them to love one another, telling them that there was a heaven promising the Holy Spirit, the vine and the branches, the encouragement that he gives there, and then his high priestly prayer in John 17 all happen in the upper room around the events of the Last Supper, just so you have a timeline. And Jesus prayed for them, and he prayed that they would be one and that they would love each other and that they would spread the news that the world might know. And after he prayed his high priestly prayer, John 18.1 records these words. When Jesus had spoken these words or prayed that prayer, John 18, 1, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden into which he himself entered and his disciples. And I want you to see this for a second. A thousand years between David the king and the ultimate king Messiah David lived a thousand years before. Jesus will repeat the steps of David. He will leave the city because they have rejected him as king. They will not accept him. They say, this man will not rule over us. 
And he says, your house, if that's the way you want it, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, your house is left to you desolate. And the sons of the kingdom, they should have been, the Pharisees and the Sadducees conspired against him, brought false witnesses. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him, which will happen a little bit later. And over the Kidron, he crosses, repeating the footsteps of David. And into the Garden of Gethsemane, which is part of the Mount of Olives, he goes. And in that garden, he says, Father, three times, I think Mark's gospel says, he threw himself to the ground on his face and said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And what did Jesus know? That the betrayer, Judas, the phony, the New Testament Absalom, had already told him where he would be, already had uh, legions of soldiers coming and would identify him with a kiss. And the Old Testament story of David is being lived out in the New Testament, greater David Messiah. And what's the point? Why did Jesus have to leave Jerusalem? Why was he rejected by the sons of the kingdom, if I can put it that way? Do you know why? Not for his sins. But he was being treated as though he had committed David's sins and your sins and my sins. Why does he... Why does he walk that walk? Do you know this is the only mention in the New Testament of the Kidron Ravine right here in John 18? And the link is there. It's unmistakable. And he doesn't do it because he had done something wrong. He doesn't do it because he sinned, because he never sinned. He was without sin. But he walks across the Kidron where often the blood of sacrificial lambs would be drained from the temple. He crosses the blood, if you will. And he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane knowing that he's going to face the darkness of the cross, betrayal, conspiracy, all because he loves me and you. Betrayed, conspired against completely innocent, and then he'll go to the cross and be treated on the cross as though he committed our sins, though he was completely innocent. This is the majesty of the Bible. This is the majesty of your king. This is the majesty of the one who loved us to the end. Father, as we ponder the scriptures, the mastery of the way you have weaved these stories together, all of us, I think, in this room probably could relate to betrayal and maybe even being conspired against. And maybe, Lord, if we're going to be honest, maybe we've betrayed some people and conspired against some people and manipulated our way, at least in the past. And if you, O oh Lord, kept a record of sin... Oh, Lord, who could stand? But on that dark night, the night before Jesus died on the cross, when he crossed the Kidron, I believe that he had to have, at least in part on his mind, this story. Absalom. Betrayal by someone who was supposed to love us the most. 
And we all have our pains and hurts, Lord. We have relationships that need healing. We have our hearts that need healing. And thank you that you took that walk across the Kidron and into the Garden of Gethsemane to deal with all of that junk, all of those hurts, all of those shortcomings, all of that stuff was nailed to the cross. It's no longer counted against us and no longer do we have to be captive to it. We don't have to be a slave to sin nor to what other people have done or thought or said. We're free because you made us free. You keep your head and heart bowed just at these moments of concluding this time in God's word. Would you just do some business with God If you're not a Christian, run to Jesus. He walked across the Kidron into the garden, allowed himself to be taken for you, went to the cross for you, rose from the dead for you, but you must trust him as your king and your Lord. Ask him in right now. Today's the acceptable time. Now is the time. Jesus, it's something like this, save me. Thank you that you took my punishment and my shame. Thank you that you went to the cross for me. Thank you that you died there for me as though you committed my sins. Thank you that you defeated death through the resurrection. I repent, pray it if it's you. I receive you as my Lord and my Savior and my King. Save me, Lord, forgive me. Cleanse me, give me a new heart and a new start. Are you a prodigal? Keep your head and heart bowed. Do you need to get back on track with the Lord? Maybe you're reeling from some decisions that you've made, but Psalm 3 and the other things that we have read is ministered to you, and you know that you just need to get right with God and just leave the rest to him. So I would encourage you, a prayer of recommitment. And then for all the sweet saints here, saints that are trying to walk the walk, Stay where they are supposed to be. Father, grant us mercy and truth and grace for all the Kidron brooks that we face and the Garden of Gethsemanes that we go through and help us to remember that you paid it all for us and we're free in Christ. And I pray that times of refreshing would come for those who maybe this story has hit really close to home and they just need some of the chains to fall, I pray that chains would fall and that you would grant freedom and refreshing as only you can. Just pour out your spirit on your people, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray.